Over the next 70 minutes or so, we will discuss linkages between transnational crime and terrorism in India. The subject is of immense policy relevance, but often overlooked in favor of other issues, most notably geopolitical rivalries. South Asia is one of the most geopolitically charged regions of the world, and organized crime cannot be understood without examining the role of state actors, not only in terms of corruption, but also in terms of instrumentalizing criminal entities for geopolitical ends. Organized crime is not merely a social menace, but has direct implications for Indian national security. One of the topics we will be discussing today is the 1993 synchronized bombings in Mumbai. Considered an archetypical example of crime terror convergence, the event has been studied across the world, but the original crime terror nexus was not forged in Mumbai in 1993. Rather, it appeared in Indian Punjab in the 1980s. A few radicalized elements of the Punjabi diaspora in Canada, the UK and the US, representing no one but themselves, chose to sponsor religious violence and separatist terrorism on Indian territory. Taking advantage of the fact that the Pakistani city of Lahore was a hub for the heroin trade, they enlisted the services of drug traffickers to smuggle weapons and funds to criminals in Indian Punjab. The weapons were used for carrying out religious killings aimed at polarizing relations between Hindus and Sikhs and for assassinating police officials and creating a climate of fear and terror. In response, the Indian government embarked on a massive border fencing project to interdict the dual threat of arms and drug trafficking. The two threats have gone together since the 1980s. Today, despite the significant reduction of violence in Indian Punjab to almost non-existent levels, Persistent efforts are made to stoke terrorism in the false uh, name of religious and ethnic separatism in Indian Punjab. Delivery systems have been automated. Today, drones are crossing the India-Pakistan border, dropping drugs and firearms into Indian territory. Our discussion will demonstrate how terrorists do not need a popular narrative nor mass support to carry out provocative attacks. All they need is an infrastructure for bypassing state vigilance and border security, an infrastructure which already exists in the form of transnational crime groups. We have two experts today who will share their insights of the crime terror convergence in India. And we are also privileged to have a very distinguished discussant joining us as well. Our first speaker, Dr. Kartikeya Tripathi, is a lecturer at University College London. He previously worked as a journalist for six years in Mumbai, covering court trials of the local mafia. He also covered the trial of Ajmal Kasab, the sole surviving terrorist of the 26-11 Mumbai terrorist attacks. Our second speaker, Ms. Mikhaila Mitovsiev, is a research analyst with the European Foundation for South Asian Studies. She has researched on South Asian geopolitics, terrorist activities, and terrorism financing. And as our lead discussant, we are extremely privileged to have Mr. Junaid Qureshi, the director of the European Foundation for South Asian Studies. Mr. Qureshi is uniquely placed to pro provide us with a panoptic view of the situation in South Asia. My first question will be to Dr. Tripathi. Sir, in the years since the 1993 attacks, Mumbai has seen other acts of terrorism, including the 2611 attacks, which you covered. But in none of these was the role of the mafia as pronounced, at least according to publicly available information, as in 1993. Why was this? Thank you. Thank you, Prem. And good morning to everyone. Um, when you mentioned my bio, um, I should also add that while I was working as a journalist, I covered the 1993 blast trial, which at that time seemed to go on 
forever and ever and ever before the verdict was pronounced. And it was a trial which had 123 uh, accused persons, of which 100 were convicted of the charges brought against them uh, by uh, Mumbai police. And uh, if there was clearly a link between organized crime and terrorism. In this case, the role played by the Daud Abraham gang in the 1993 uh, blasts, uh, uh, serial blast in Mumbai. Now, an important thing to get out of the way uh, to start with is that it is very rare to be able to find that link between working of the often organized crime syndicate and um, and a terrorist act. Uh, usually, you don't find these links, and it's it's absolutely uh, unique the, what happened in Mumbai that an existing organized crime syndicate, which had been uh, flourishing, uh, perhaps one of the strongest uh, OC syndicates in Mumbai at the time, and continues to be uh, really influential. So, a well well entrenched organized crime syndicate in the communities in Mumbai. Uh, played a direct part in uh, the terrorist attack, uh, terrorist attacks in Mumbai, and there was clearly a, a longer his narrative and a story to it, which came out subsequently uh, in their arrest and the trial. Uh, the reason I'm saying saying that is that organized crime generally does not like terrorism because and terrorists, terrorists, especially state-sponsored terrorists, do not like organized crime, and the reasons for that are fairly uh, fairly simple. Uh, Organized crime knows that once they cross the boundary into terrorism, it brings a, the the heat of the state of the police upon them like like um, never before, and it it makes their very existence uh, very very difficult. Uh, which is exactly what happened in the case of the ninety three blast as well. Uh, the, the 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 like I said, these were well run smuggling networks, and they existed under the eyes. Uh, of all the law enforcement agencies and uh, and there was a reason for it because they kept to smuggling which was an acceptable form of crime for uh, many people but the moment uh, they took uh, part in the 93 serial blast the, the gang was uh, the, the syndicate was almost uh, wiped out uh, by the Indian state uh, most of their kingpins had to had to uh, leave the country. Those who remained in the country were tried, uh, convicted, sentenced to long years in prison. Uh, uh, one of the conspirators was even uh, hanged to death. Now, states don't like organized crime uh, to support terrorist activities because it just exposes them. So the 93 blast clearly showed the entire part played by Pakistan's agencies in in enabling this terrorist attack in India because you arrested people who had gone to Pakistan, trained there. Uh, the, the agencies could put together a clear picture of how uh, explosives were smuggled into India via ports in Gujarat, how they came in. And it really exposed the nature of, of uh, the role played by Pakistan. Now, coming to subsequent terrorist attacks in Mumbai and I was I covered a lot of them, uh, their trials as well. Uh, the main in them would include the gateway bombing, uh, which was carried out by a family which was actually radicalized in Dubai. Uh, there uh, again, no clear role of organized crime. Uh, there was the the bus blast in Ghatkopar, for which the entire trial was uh, handled really badly uh, by the police. Um, there were the uh, train blasts in uh, the 7-11 train blasts, uh, which I think were um, 
remain uh, killed almost as many people as the 93 blast. And then you have the 26-11 attack. Uh, in between, there was a bombing of uh, McDonald's in near Mumbai Central, where I think uh, the, the people were injured, but there weren't uh, uh, there there weren't any deaths. I may be wrong, but it was it was minor, as we can call it, terrorist attack minor in in comparison to other attacks that have taken place in Mumbai. Now, here in all these attacks, uh, you could not see a clear, uh, you know, clear fingerprint of the mafia or any organized crime terrorist group. And the question for me is really interesting because um, I was struck by what you said in your opening remarks that the organized crime syndicates used in, in, in the, amongst the diaspora use organized crime in Pakistan, uh, organized crime groups in Punjab to uh, smuggle in explosives and smuggle in material to support their activity. So essentially what they were doing was that they were piggybacking on what the organized crime networks were doing to facilitate their um, um, facilitate their goals, which is terrorism. Now, I think that in the other terrorist attacks, uh, especially uh, 7-11 and 26-11, uh, 26-11, you know, there were uh, hardly any locals involved. Uh, there were the two other men who were tried along with Kasab. Both of them were acquitted. Uh, and the rest of the gunmen, as we know, were all killed. And the masterminds and the entire you know group which planned the conspiracy still sits in in Pakistan, some of them in Pakistani jails. Um, so the point I'm trying to make is that after a point, uh, Pakistan also realizes that working with organized crime syndicates is a liability. And either it does it so well that Mumbai police has not been able to find the evidence, which I would doubt very much, uh, or it, it, it found ways to bypass them. Because essentially, uh, what you're using the organized crime networks for is to facilitate the terrorist attack. And why would you go to them if you can do it by yourself with your own capabilities, and which is something that the Indian state really needs to think about? Um, again, it depends on in the trajectory of development of, of you know, your skill set to carry out terrorist attacks in another country. You probably need the local organized crime groups when you are weaker uh, in terms of carrying out the whole operation. So again, like with the diaspora abroad, they needed the gangs in Punjab because they themselves didn't have the long reach in able for them to be able to do it. Now, that's what I think. But again, what my discipline teaches me is that we must take, must speak on the basis of evidence-based analysis. So what is the evidence? You come back to 93 Blast, the evidence was so overwhelming and so many arrests were made and the story was so clear that there were no doubts left. But again, I would say that is kind of uh, rare. And also it was happening at a time when the capability of uh, terrorist groups based in Pakistan or the Pakistani state itself to carry out really sophisticated uh, well-synchronized attacks in India wasn't really that well-developed. So I think the evidence which we may never see uh, is to try and understand from the point of view of the perpetrator what is going on. Do they need the organized crime groups? Do they not need it? Do they need them but they can bypass them? So I think that's where the discussion should go forward. Uh, 
to to uh, eliminate this topic. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Tripathi. You you raise an interesting uh, and, and, and well a number of very interesting points. And one that really struck me is the the importance of intelligence information here. I mean, uh, in the case of Punjab, I have actually seen police intelligence reports. Uh, of of a very low security classification, but still not meant for public viewing, which clearly bring out the organized crime link. But one doesn't often hear of this. You know, one hears about other issues, political or historical issues, but the operational linkages, especially extending into Pakistan, are often not known. And who are the key players in Lahore as well? Um, I, w- I would we would definitely be coming back to these points that you've raised. But for a moment, I'd like to go to Miss. And we have our tendency is to look at organized crime and terrorism from a national perspective, India or Colombia or other parts of the world, but it's very country specific. If you were to look at South Asia as a whole, um, how would you see the linkages between organized crime and terrorism evolving within the region? Because these are transnational. How would you see those linkages evolving over the course of the next five years? Thank you, Prem. Um, well, I think that, first of all, that five years is a very uh, short period. Uh, so seeing what's, uh, what is going on in South Asia today, I would say that probably uh, the situation would stay the same or maybe even get worse. Uh, this is because of main four reasons. Uh, so first of all, terrorism is proliferating in the region uh, as well as uh, uh, criminal activities and terrorist orga- organizations and criminal uh, groups uh, maintain a business relationship, basically. Uh, money and transactions today are getting more and more uh, controlled by states. Uh, especially uh, the use of cash. And uh, finally, uh, we also believe that um, the projects of the Belt and Road Initiative uh, of the Chinese government could even facilitate terrorism and uh, criminal activities in the region. Uh, So I will go into more details now. Uh, Well, we have seen terrorism proliferating in this past few years so we can think of a major example in uh, Afghanistan uh, in 2021 with the uh, Taliban takeover but even uh, in Pakistan uh, it's known that Pakistan uh, uh, is involved in uh, creating and financing terrorist organizations in the region um, to act uh, and to reach uh, uh, Pakistan's own uh, geopolitical agenda. Uh, so we can think about uh, uh, Lashkar Etlaiva, Jaisho Mohammed, Tariq Taliban, Pakistan, uh, who act um, both in Pakistan and uh, in India. Um, also, in 1999, Benazir Bhutto's uh, uh, Minister of Interior uh, explicitly said uh, we created the Taliban. Uh, so yeah, we have evidence there uh, about Pakistan uh, government and also the military establishment involvement uh, in terrorist activities in the region. And uh, in India, um, well, sadly, uh, also uh, terrorist activities are very active. Only in 2021, in Jammu and Kashmir, uh, uh, there have been uh, 153 attacks. Uh, and also, yeah, again, Pakistan is uh, involved here because hundreds of Kashmiris uh, uh, trained uh, in Pakistan and came back to Kashmir. Uh, 
to act as terrorists. Um, well, then organized crime is also proliferating in the region. Uh, India has um, decreasing levels of organized crime uh, in these past few years, uh, but still worryingly high. Um, Pakistan has uh, uh, mafia-style uh, organized uh, criminal groups uh, that are involved in drug, drug, uh, drug trafficking, environmental crimes, uh, racketeering and extortion activities. And uh, um, Afghanistan is also sadly known uh, for its opium trade, uh, which the Taliban exploited for many years. And now that they took over, they're trying to stop it. Um, so all these criminal groups probably have relationships with terrorist organizations. Um, this is uh, uh, probably to... Uh, put a solution to uh, a problem of uh, money control uh, from the states uh, because countries are introduci introducing more and more controls on the use of cash and even cryptocurrencies are becoming more popular. Uh, so both terrorist organizations and criminal groups need more money laundering activities and uh, uh, this could probably create a link uh, between the these two uh, issues and groups. Uh, terrorists, all in Pakistan, uh, every year $10 billion are laundered, and we can well imagine where uh, they come from and what they will finance. Uh, so terrorist organizations anyway always exploited uh, uh, criminal uh, activities, especially in drug tra trafficking. Again, for example, in a Afghanistan, the Taliban, and the opium trade. Um, finally, yeah, we believe the Belt and Road Initiative and the Belt and Road uh, um, uh, infrastructure pro projects developed by China uh, in the region, especially in Afghanistan and Pakistan, uh, could actually uh, facilitate terrorist terrorism and uh, organized crime. Uh, this is because uh, these groups could use, could use these infrastructures uh, for their own benefit and taking advantage for uh, illicit enterprises, but also um, so China is um, carrying out uh, uh, these projects uh, uh, using Chinese companies and bringing Chinese workers. So the indigenous people uh, are letting completely out of the job market and they're only seeing their land uh, uh, exploited. Uh, to build these huge infrastructures. So we are worried that this could uh, uh, increase uh, a feeling of uh, anger and um, this could very well be used by terrorist groups and exploited to exploit this feeling of anger of the population to um, recruit more uh, militants. Thank you very much, Ms. Mutavsiev. Your answer demonstrates that in this day and age, actually, the quality of analysis that one is capable of delivering is actually of a very high level. I must compliment you because that was, I think, a very good summary of the, the situation in South Asia. I have a number of follow-up questions. So I have a question for Dr. Tripathi. So when it comes to the Mumbai mafia, of course, the the image that we often have is from Bollywood films and so on. Actually, in terms of actual studies, I mean, I, I know of no scholar other than yourself who's actually working on the Mumbai mafia from an academic point of view. 
So uh, a question which I'd like to ask you is, we've often heard about the drugs connection, Dawood Ibrahim as a drug trafficker, but everything that is usually reported about him talks of gold smuggling in the old days uh, from the Middle East, and then subsequently about protection rackets and Bollywood and so on. Uh, so my question to you is, how deeply was the Mumbai mafia, whether it was Dawood Ibrahim's gang or any other groups as well, how deeply were they involved in the international drug trade? I mean, that's a good question. So Dawood Ibrahim uh, gang still remains one of the largest narcotic smuggling, narco-terrorist organizations in the world. I think the FBI has them uh, on their um, list as the most dangerous uh, narco-terrorist groups in the world. Uh, but see, the... The point here, which I think connects back to, to the question on terrorism, is that organized crime syndicates are generally flexible if they want to survive. So they are trying to meet a particular need, right? And the way they operate is that they are clever enough to exploit the, the systemic shortcomings or failures within, uh, within an economic system to fill in a gap in the market. So how does it start with? gold and silver smuggling. Gold and sm silver smuggling in India flourished at the time when the duties on the import of gold, when when uh, when the restrictions on the amount of gold that you could, that you could import were so severe uh, that it just made more sense both for the public and for the mafia to just smuggle it in and get access to gold and silver. But that goes back. So if you see the, uh, the earliest big organized crime groups in Mumbai, such as uh, Haji Mustard. Uh, they were smuggling in electronic goods, you know, your two-in-one uh, cassette recorders and then subsequently video VCRs, etc. Right? How did their business collapse when the government just legalized it and when a number of, like, you know, electronic companies, both Indian and multinational, started selling these goods at competitive prices in market. So the issue is that with the drugs will always remain a huge market for organized crime everywhere because of just, you know, the profits that are to be made and the demand which exists for us. So there was this, you know, Afghan, Afghan, I think, politician who had said that, who had said, you know, Americans should understand that we won't sell you the drugs if you won't buy them. So the point is that there is always a huge market for drugs and illegal market with massive profits to be made, which brings in the organized crime network. Now, coming back to the question of the Dawood gang, it is not just a narcotics uh, operation anymore. It has diversified into much else. So, for example, the real estate, uh, again, a highly regulated industry in Mumbai, where the rules that govern the development of real estate infrastructure in the city have are far behind times of what is happening in reality when you have this really growing economy, a massive middle class, a large number of professionals who are getting good salaries. But you know, Mumbai is a sliver of land and they don't there just isn't enough housing going around, right? Uh, and it's just very hard to develop uh, for real estate uh, property developers to uh, to build so these are the kind of places where the under the, the the mafia the underworld really steps in and they realize so we so we have this kind of like you know selection bias where we only look at gangs which are operating and flourishing and doing well what we forget is that over the years for every organized crime syndicate that works out of Mumbai, 
of I would say anywhere else, there would be 10 others who had who disappeared, right? Either they were taken out by the police or they were taken out by the other gangs or their business destroyed. Now, organized crime syndicates, especially the successful ones, are always very aware of the fact that just like any other business, they can go out of business unless they diversify. And those who survive are the ones who moved very quickly from one opportunity to another, right? Or strengthen themselves in the in the space where you know the the, the money is good. Um, and the gangs that survive in Mumbai are very good at doing that. And just one more point. Uh, while I was a journalist, I covered this really interesting case where this uh, bank employee young but fairly senior in a private multinational bank in, in Mumbai was arrested and I think he was subsequently sentenced to uh, seven or ten years in prison under uh, Makoka, the Organized Crime Act. And he was doing something very simple. He was just passing on information of high net worth individuals to the Daudi Brian gang for purposes of extortion. So the point I'm making is that it was something that was kind of like a blind spot for the police and for everybody who works on organized crime syndicates because you wouldn't really expect a guy making good salary, good life, uh, working directly for Daudi Brian gang because our image of the Daudi Brian gang would remain as, you know, people calling up uh, Bollywood producers, threatening them, smuggling things, shooters, etc., etc., etc. No, this was an upper-middle-class, well-educated guy with a decent salary uh, working directly for the syndicate which again shows that, that organized crime groups which survive and thrive and grow and continue to have a presence are doing so by moving into multiple areas of opportunity. So cryptocurrency came up, definitely. Cybercrime, right? Uh, and mostly for them, the governing motive is profitability and survival. So if you look at that framework, we will begin to understand more about how they think and how they collaborate with other state agencies or choose or choose not to participate in terrorist acts. Thank you, Dr. Tripathi. Um, there, you, you raised a number of interesting points. There are two particularly stood out. One, you were talking about people who sometimes don't meet our expectations or our profile of someone who's involved in organized crime being involved. And second, the police having a blind spot. Um, so you know, the, on the first point, actually, um, if you look at, say, Indo-Canadian organized crime now, Punjabi gangs who are active in British Columbia and Vancouver and who are actually involved in violence in Indian Punjab, allegedly, but there, there are some serious reports on this. One of the interesting things is that they are accused of carrying, of commissioning contract killings in Indian Punjab to destabilize the politics of the, of the province. And this is interesting because it often flies under the radar. You know, if contract killings are carried out, but there's no explosion or bomb blast or something like that, people may not necessarily report it. It becomes a tragedy for the family and people around may understand what's happening. The police would know. But this is one way that organized crime might fly under the radar. Also, interestingly, uh, some of these Indo-Canadian gangs actually don't consist of what we would also consider a typical gangster. Some of these People are relatively well off. I wouldn't say they're they're rich because that's not true, but they're definitely not completely poor and destitute. It's it's like they get into this almost because of the thrill of knowing that they're in a safe haven, that um, you know, the there are international restrictions and coming after them and so on. Uh, the point that you made about the police blind spot, I remember reading uh, an analysis by DC Parter, former director of intelligence bureau 
who said that actually the Mumbai 1993 blasts were the first time that the Indian security establishment considered organized crime as a national security threat. Until then, it was very much a police problem. It was very localized. But uh, that sort of completely changed the perspective. Um, I would like to ask a question of Ms. Mutovsiev, if I may. Do- Dr. Tripathi had raised this point about, you know, uh, something that is not expected because organized crime is actually, you know, there there are interests which will be undermined if you get involved in terrorism. Now, with the, both the 1993 Mumbai blast as well as the killing of Indian Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi in 1991, the Initial response was, why would this happen? Why would Dawood Ibrahim attack Mumbai, his own home base? And why would the Tamil Tigers, the LTTE, kill the Indian Prime Minister and alienate the entire Indian state as well as the people of Tamil Nadu? We all know it did happen. Dawood Ibrahim did carry out the blasts and uh, the LTTE did assassinate Rajiv Gandhi, the former Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi. So there have been reports now that drug cartels in the AFPAC region are building ties with remnants of the LTTE and that these are coming through Pakistan. Have you, in all your research in the region, come across any information about this potential linkage between Tamil militants, whether in Sri Lanka or elsewhere, and Afghan drug cartels, Afghan Pak drug cartels? Um, So I will be very honest, to be honest, uh, no, I haven't. Um, come across any information about this? I don't know if uh, Mr. Kureshi uh, has, uh, but yeah. I understand. I understand. Uh, but then, if we look at the drugs angle specifically, if I may, I wanted to ask you in your assessment, is the drugs and terrorism link, uh, sorry, drugs and, um, yeah, drugs and terrorism, is that link more a localized one or is it something which occurs at a regional level? Because if it's localized, it can be opportunistic. It's basically, you know, some gang leader looking to how to increase his revenue, essentially. But if it's regional, then it's more systematic. Then we can even potentially look at the role of state actors facilitating the relations between drug cartels and terrorist groups. So um, your your thoughts on that? I, I think it's definitely uh, at regional level, not just a local level. Uh, and it's not that uh, criminal groups need terrorist organizations, uh, while I think it's more the opposite. It's that terrorist organizations need um, to act uh, with criminal activities and to collaborate with criminal groups to uh, finance their uh, their work, their activities. Uh, so I think it's definitely a regional level. Uh, again, we've seen it, uh, for example, in in Afghanistan with the opium trade. Uh, it's it's not just a local level. It's uh, a huge market. Uh, that many different organizations exploit. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Matavsiev. Um, If I may, I would like to advance a, a thesis or a suggestion out there um, and uh, an idea out there and then get your responses from, from the two speakers as well as the discussant. And also then I would invite you to ask questions of each other. So if you look at the Dawood Ibrahim gang in particular, and you look at some of the guys who are involved in fomenting violence in Indian Punjab. I mean, the key element is that they are transnational, actually. And that element of having a safe haven somewhere can, I would suggest, I would hypothesize, it can loosen the restrictions that traditional local organized crime faces 
if you are city-based, right? If you're based in a city, you're running protection rackets, you're controlling the docks or whatever, there are serious problems if you get involved in uh, terrorist activities. But in the case of Dawood Ibrahim, we know he was not in India during the time of the blast. In fact, he had been out of India for several years. Um, and in the case of some of the most um, active and militant elements of the Punjabi uh, mafia in Canada, it's the same with them, actually. You know, they have a safe haven. And also another element which I would like to raise is the 1993 blasts were clearly atypical. But as far as I'm aware, Dawood Ibrahim did not claim responsibility for the attacks. And actually, he denied responsibility. Um, and this element of terrorist groups or even, you know, any actor denying responsibility for an attack is sometimes overlooked. I mean, if you remember, even lashkar e denied responsibility for the 2008 Mumbai attacks, right? Um, so the the point that I would like to put out there for discussion, perhaps we can come back to it uh, later, is that organized crime can be potentially involved in terrorist activity uh, if it serves to destabilize uh, a region, if it serves to distract the police, put pressure on them to focus on, say, political surveillance rather than uh, going after criminal elements. It can do this provided the masterminds of this activity are really safe abroad. And it's just the local foot soldiers who, as we know, in India's political economy can be hired, sometimes without fully knowing what they're getting into as well. Um, you know, So there can be corruption or there can just be simple payoffs to local mercenaries to engage in criminal activities. Um, I, I have a question, if I may, for Dr. Tripathi, and that is, you know, when it comes to the 90, to Dawood Ibrahim in particular, now, until 1993, there was a heavy level of involvement on the part of, uh, well, not involvement, but let's say proximity between him and the Indian film industry, Bollywood, cricketers, they all didn't mind being seen in his presence. After that, it stops completely. Would it be correct to say that until 1993, he was seen something as as something of, um, you know, a rogue element, but not necessarily a, an anti-national element, right? So there wasn't that same moral um, view of, or sort of moralistic view of him that would be applied, say, in other cultures, perhaps. Like I'm thinking of the United States, where gangsters are stigmatized in, in popular discourse. But in the case of India, it seemed that until he carried out this attack, he was almost like a Robin Hood style figure. Um, and that changed. Would that be correct, sir? Okay, so I've been listening to various things you've been saying. And there are a couple of interesting takeaways. In order to understand the working of an organized crime syndicate, you have to begin for me, or, you, know, you have to begin by understanding that they have two clear goals. One is survival, and the other is profitability. And those are both like linked to each other. Because uh, running organized crime operations uh, requires uh, huge profits, right? Uh, it's lucrative because of the profits. You don't pay any tax on the money that you make. Usually you make money in large amounts. And then you can start using this money to invest it in other legitimate businesses, right? Uh, so you can go into uh, uh, films, you can go into uh, real estate, you can uh, go into, you know, uh, malls, all these things that gang, mafia, organized crime syndicates in Mumbai have done and continue to do so. The the reason for that is that they 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 they're worried about you know their survival and and the profitability. So in case of Daud Ibrahim gang getting involved in in terrorism, 
uh, that caught everybody off guard and it was a huge intelligence failure because there was nothing that predicted which that he would do so right because doing doing it threatens both both those things survival and your business operations and profitability because at some level everybody knows that you're crossing a line right uh, beyond which the state will not tolerate you and all the previous operations including uh, <clears throat> smuggling working with bollywood financing firms etc were done quite openly i mean it wasn't like you know and there were large scale operations and they were completely uh, you know um, act- i mean the state tolerated it uh, agents of the state made vast amounts of money from the corruption and 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 the proceeds that came from it everybody was happy right uh, daud so this is what we've heard uh, in the gang itself daud himself was reluctant to carry out the 93 blast but because of the previous uh, uh, communal rioting and everything that was going on uh, he started receiving uh, clear messages from from you know um, his support base that if they did not act in the name of religion then their very existence would be threatened. So it comes back to the first point. All organized crime bosses and gangs want to survive. And when they realize that their existence is threatened, they must act. And the other thing that happened personally for him was that um, that Memon started coming across as the more, you know, jihadi element of the uh, element of the group who was committed to avenging what had happened in the riots and therefore challenged his position so he was in a situation where he where he had to act now this was very cleverly exploited by ISI and Pakistan because at that time i think they did not have the ability to carry out synchronized blasts in mumbai by bringing in large amounts of rdx weaponry challenging the state uh, they didn't have the means to do it independently from pakistan right they needed a local player and this situation was there and the local player was ready and they carried it out and it was planned and executed over several months now why did mumbai police miss something as big as that happening from you know an entity which they clearly you know, existed had links with it right had intelligence upon it they were just like you know as organic as anything else in uh, mumbai for mumbai police and that is a level of planning and operational secrecy and failure of the intelligence agencies which is i think unprecedented and it kind of woke up like you said uh, the police to the fact that organized crime can pose a national security threat they are not completely rational actors but you have to come back the rationality there for daud was to survive now the other point that you raised about punjabi gangs uh, uh punjabi who form gangs in canada and carry out assassinations and contract killings in india the, the thing the what what would need to be looked at is a what is the attitude of the state where they are based right so in the case of 93 blast it was quite clear that the attitude of the state in this case which is pakistan was to um, uh, was to use them and support them and facilitate so what is the canadian government doing you can have multiple you know you can take multiple approaches one is you can be against it and you can take them out but right, easy enough for any any well established state and police to so i think i'm sure canada is completely capable of it the other is support them 
because you want to destabilize another country by using these guys as proxy, which again, we don't know whether Canada wants to do that or not. Or third, just ignore them, you know, which is which is what seems to be happening or, or let them be because it has, uh, you know, some sort of political or instrumental gains for you. Uh, in case of Mumbai, it's different because what 2611... Uh, attack showed was that how much things have changed from 1993 to 2008 in those 15 years the same ISI did not need that much local support in order to carry out an extremely well organized sophisticated attack with weapons with explosives it could do so by itself right and you know again if we were to take the learning from Mumbai to Punjab, a good thing to understand is that organized crime comes into terrorism when the terrorism, when the states which are sponsoring terrorism are at different stages of sophistication. So, you know, if uh, if they, they if their capabilities haven't developed to to execute it by themselves using just their own agents, a minimal footprint where they can control everything, they would have to turn to local actors. And like you said, local actors are for hire. Local actors are for um, are easily available. Uh, you can exploit uh, political uh, divisions. You can exploit uh, communal situations. You can exploit the difference between communities in order to do it. And I think with Punjab, I think that's the stage which is where it is at and something that we can learn. The Thank you, Dr. Tripathi. If uh, if I might just um, pick up on one point that you mentioned regarding the attitude of the state in the case of uh, particularly the Punjabi mafia in Canada. Now, in light of you know ongoing events, there's of course a lot of discussion about what's what the history is actually. And one interesting detail which is often overlooked is that we all we all know about the Kanishka bombing, which took place on the 23rd of June 1985. An Indian airliner was downed over the Atlantic, uh, killing 329 passengers. The bomb in that case was planted, uh, or the mastermind of that attack was a Canadian citizen of Indian Punjabi origin. Now he was never charged or uh, he was never prosecuted and convicted by the Canadian government, even though he had been under surveillance. In the year 2000, a former Canadian intelligence official revealed that he personally, the official, had personally erased wiretap evidence, which could have led to a conviction of this man because they wanted to protect sources and methods and so on. So essentially, uh, there was no real justice for the uh, for the masterminds uh, of the attacks and there was no justice for the victims. Eventually, the mastermind ended up traveling to India to carry out more terrorist attacks and the Punjab police killed him there. But the point that I'm trying to make is, um, although we live in a post 9-11 world, it does seem that some certain governments, perhaps out of political compulsion, perhaps out of disagreements over extradition procedures and what constitutes evidence and how reliable the evidence is, so- sometimes governments really do not cooperate in shutting down transnational crime and terrorist networks. And I think, you know, for the sake of politeness, we shouldn't forget this reality as well. It's not that governments will automatically respond to extradition requests or um, requests for security cooperation from one another. Uh, a question to Ms. Mutavsiev, and then I would invite the speakers to pose questions to each other. Uh, so, ma'am, you had talked about China's Belt and Road Initiative and the possible linkages that could have to crime. Uh, now, in the case of the Mumbai attacks, the 2611 Mumbai attacks, it was reported by David Headley, the one, the, one of the guys who was involved in the attacks, that 
the mastermind of the attack, Sajid Majid or Sajid Mir, who's a, a Pakistani national, had developed linkages and contacts with smugglers um, al- along the maritime routes between India and Pakistan. And he used that knowledge, at least at to some level, to plan this attack. So my question to you is now, if you look at the China-Pakistan economic corridor and the significant Chinese investments in Baluchistan and so on, we know that there is an increase of drug traffic coming out of the Makran coast of Pakistan. Uh, do you think there could be a risk of maritime terrorism as well coming out of that region? Because the you know drug traffickers could potentially link up with the uh, smugglers and uh, you know look at high value targets to hit at sea, whether it's shipping or oil rigs. Do you have any sense of what whether that is a risk? This is a question also uh, to all, to you primarily, but also to Mr. Qureshi, if he wishes. Yeah, I think uh, that there definitely is a risk. Uh, this doesn't mean they will happen, uh, but there is a risk um, because of all these uh, um, huge new infrastructures. Uh, and like, yeah, there is a risk that terrorist organizations and criminal groups will take advantage of it. Uh, and of course, as you said, all the um, the oil uh, uh, industry, for example, it's, uh, it's very attractive for these groups. Uh, so I don't know if Mr. Kureshi wants to uh, add something, uh, but I think it should be uh, monitored uh, by the states. Also, I think states should uh, should monitor and should make justice for uh, um, against criminal or organizations and terrorist groups in a simultaneous way. Uh, and like in case of maritime attacks, uh, it will be uh, very needed. Absolutely. absolutely. I mean, if I may point out, I remember I once had a discussion with an, with an official, with a high-ranking Indian security official, and we were talking about maritime terrorism risks in particular. And one of the problems is they're pretty hard to investigate. Actually, you know, because if something happens on the high seas, then there are all kinds of questions about who's actually going to take the responsibility of carrying out the investigation. Second, how do you recover evidence that's at the bottom of the ocean, which is the logical thing for people to do, you know. Um, so thank you very much for that. I would invite the speakers to uh, ask questions of each other. Um, Dr. Tripathi, do you have any questions from Ms. Matavsia? Yes, I mean, just before um, I... I, I was just um, uh, listening to uh, what uh, uh, what Michaela said, and uh, the thought, which I think I guess needs further uh, kind of deliberation, is that the question that the Indian state has to ask itself is that when you know that the existence of organized crime groups carries the risk of their operations and their you know um, membership being exploited to carry out terrorist attacks why why are we tolerating them you know so a part of the answer also is in realizing that the organized crime groups generally work in um, um, you know generally work quite openly uh, they have links with officials of the state like I said there's corruption uh, their operations generally uh, are facilitated by the the, the manner of um, uh, the, the, the way in which laws are framed, uh, procedural uh, issues, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, do we wait for them to become, you know, terrorist threats, and they're fine until then? Um, it's a big question. I mean, of course, acting against them requires um, a lot of efficiency, a lot of motivation, a, a, a lot of 
you know, the shaking up of the security and political infrastructure because the organized crime groups are quite deeply embedded within socio-political and economic systems. But, you know, they do carry with them a risk of turning into something that we don't like. So why don't we, you know, start looking at them as a threat before they actually do something to be called a national security threat? So again, the whole issue with gangs in uh, Canada operating in Punjab, we just can't say that, you know, they are sitting there being supported by the Canadian state and carrying out uh, assassinations in Punjab. You know, what is it that's happening in Punjab? Okay, so there, there is an element you don't have control over or complete control over, which is transnational and in another country. But there is an element which you have complete control over because it is within your country. You know, uh, your security agencies know their DNA completely well uh, if you go and have an honest chat about them they will also know how they themselves are uh, operation so someone needs to think at a policy level how long do we want to tolerate them and how long do we want to wait or is it that we act only after something really bad has happened uh, and that's that's a a uh, big, big question. Uh, my question for Michaela would be, uh, I've been deeply interested in, you know, Afghanistan, the political situation there and how it happens for years now. And my question to her would be that, you know, the, from the way I understand it, Taliban has come back to power and everybody has just gone back to ignoring what's happening in Afghanistan and turning a blind completely blind eye to it in terms of the international community. I mean, we had an earthquake where more than 3,000 people died and nobody looks at it. Uh, and, uh, and the Taliban are clearly very much in charge. So what do you think, according to Michaela, are implications of that for India uh, in terms of terrorism and threat that it poses? Because in the past, when, whenever Taliban has been really strong in Afghanistan, uh, there have been consequences for India in terms of terrorism. So, yeah. Thank you, Dr. Tripathi. Uh, Ms. Matavsia, would you like to answer? First of all, I agree with uh, uh, the fact that action should be taken before uh, such events happen, uh, especially with uh, um, yeah, with policies of de-radicalization uh, of society, especially young people. Uh, and this means uh, tackling social issues, uh, especially like, um, I would say, especially poverty. And, and social exclusion. Um, and about uh, Afghanistan, eventually uh, this will grow. Uh, like terrorist activities, um, if nothing is done uh, in Afghanistan, uh, probably the, this will be will have an influence in India as well. I think Mr. Qureshi is more uh, keen on this issue. Uh, so if you don't mind, I can pass it to him. Absolutely. Mr. Qureshi, sir. Oh, well, uh, thank you, Prem. And uh, this is a very interesting discussion I've been listening. And I think why um, Michaela passed this on to me is because uh, uh, Mr. Tripathi, of course, referred to earlier instances of Afghanistan having an implication to India, which I think he might be referring to uh, basically the... Uh, issue of terrorism uh, in the region of Kashmir, uh, which happened after the Soviet-Afghan war. Um, and I think there are many uh, uh, people like Mr. Tripathi who are wary about the fact that that could happen again. Um, and I think it, it's, it's, a, it's a reasonable 
fair to have. Uh, uh, I think at the moment, uh, there might not be a fair towards it because um, what you see in the neighborhood, everyone is trying to gain some foothold in Afghanistan. You even saw, for example, the Indian state, uh, you know, maybe not establishing diplomatic relations, but just looking and sending out feelers, where do we stand? Uh, and basically that is, you know, Afghanistan has been a battlefield of influence between India and Pakistan for a long time. I do think that the Chinese are probably, um, you know, gaining some uh, ground over there because the Chinese, of course, come with a bag full of money without any strings attached. Uh, there is no human rights and women rights and all this doesn't matter that much. Um, so the, the, I don't see it happening now, today, because currently Afghanistan's or the Taliban's main issue, their main challenge is governing. Uh, they haven't governed in post 9-11 era. Um, so that will be the main challenge. Now, what I also think that at some point of time, in these ostensible, you know, uh, fights or rifts between Taliban and the, the military establishment of Pakistan, these will easen out at some point of time. Um, I think they are there because, um, because of the TTP factor. Uh, and, you know, with the Haqqanis in the Taliban government, and their very long association and the fact that the Chinese are coming on board, you know, this axis of, of the establishment, Taliban, Chinese, the TTP will essentially, you know, um, I guess the, the more hardened TTP faction will probably uh, uh, be killed or be, be uh, inducted into Taliban in Afghanistan. And, you know, the, the less hardened factor will probably be mainstream, like you've seen with the Lashkar, the Jash, uh, you know, uh, all these people over there. So, but yes, what, what will become a problem at some point of time is that in the Taliban, you, of course, have um, different levels of jihadi fighters. So you have one, which is the Qatari-based leadership, and they're having fun. Then you have the second part, which is the ruling elite in Afghanistan. And then you have the third guy who is managing traffic in Kabul. While he joined the Taliban for jihad, he joined the Taliban for a bigger purpose and not to manage traffic. <laughs> so at some point of time, this will create probably, um, you know, some tension between the foot soldier uh, of the Taliban and the ruling elite, because they will at some point of time say that, okay, now we have conquered um, Afghanistan, but, um, you know, where is the caliphate? Uh, we need to go towards, um, uh, towards, well, Iran, they won't go, uh, maybe at a later stage, but we need to go through Pakistan to the uh, so-called uh, kafirs living in India. Um, and there, I think at some point of time, there will be a trade-off uh, that certain elements will then be sent because you don't want them in Lahore and Karachi. You know, you, you don't want them in, in, in Xinjiang. So where do you send them? Uh, currently, I do think that the Indian security apparatus has been tightened. Um, but 
you know, in South Asia, we have this, you know, we have this attitude of uh, at some point of time, we let it loose. And then, you know, until something happens, because I was very, it was very interesting for me to listen to all this and this connection with the organized crime and ISI. But I was quite surprised that nobody actually mentioned the one incident, which was the, you know, there was no proof needed over there because it happened in a third country. But the one incident which was very clear of this organized crime nexus, terrorism and the ISI was, of course, the hijacking in 1999 from Kathmandu. Because in the uh, aftermath of that, the Nepalese authorities uh, kicked out a bunch of diplomats from the embassy in, in, uh, in, in, in Kathmandu. And again, there is the 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 um, that's why it converges because there is the Kashmiri element, of course, um, is that you had this organization Jammu Kashmir Islamic Front or something. I don't know whether you remember which carried out the bomb blast in Lajpat Nagar. In 1996, during the, I think elections were being held in Kashmir or in 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 in, uh, in Delhi itself, and this was basically done by a Kashmiri militant together with, as Mr. Tripathi mentioned the name, with Memon. And you know, for so the Kathmandu thing now it's not there, but why was the Kathmandu thing used? The reason for that was you had clean and already established infrastructure. If you go to Kathmandu you'll see a, a million shops of Kashmiri shawls and uh, artifacts and all. This. While you will see not, not a million clients over there. But these shops have been there in a row for the last 40 years. And it's true, somewhere in the 70s, uh, many Kashmiris went to establish businesses there. But then in the 90s, these were established businesses clean records and there is when um uh when the the pakistani intelligence agencies used this it was also a route used for infiltration because of the of the lax border controls between nepal and uh, and india so normally you know you had these terrorists coming through the himalayas and the loc and at some point of time it was i guess uh, it was memon uh, together with a guy called Hilal Beg. They created this new route of, um, you know, uh, Karachi, uh, Dubai, Dubai, uh, Kathmandu, and then you went on a driving license into India. Uh, so, so in terms of, I think the this is my personal opinion, but I think the Indian establishment in the beginning were a bit too naive to think that they might get cozy with the Taliban and then Pakistan will be out. Uh, I don't think that will happen. Um, I think the Taliban at that moment engaged not only with the Indians, but with everyone in order to get some legitimacy and get some aid going on. Uh, but now you see that it has the dust has settled. Uh, they are very much hand in glove with the Chinese. They've signed oil deals. Um, and this and I think if I'm not wrong, uh, CPAC got in, uh, you know, the Taliban included itself in CPAC. And that's very interesting. Not in the BRI, but in the CPAC, uh, which is the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, or not the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, and that's where you see, for example, um, you know, Michaela's home country, Italy, dropped from the BRI. You know, so at some point of time, this isolation for the Taliban will have repercussions, and and at some point of time, the lower-ranking people will say, "Boy, we didn't do this." Um, you know, to become clerks, uh, we want uh, to go to paradise and establish caliphate. So where, where's the action? And the action then probably will be towards, uh, I hope not, but I do think it will be towards India, specifically towards 
um, uh, Kashmir and maybe Punjab, which are the regular thing you think of. What we must not forget, you have a big presence of China in Myanmar and that side. So it could also be, and China has been known to supporting Northeastern groups in India. Um, I do think because of the, there's no religion element there. So the Taliban might not be interested, but you know, just fighting the infidels is is maybe good enough for them. Um, thank you very much, Mr. Qureshi, because that that's why it's it's so valuable to have you here, sir. You brought in the Nepal element, which, as you correctly said, none of us mentioned, and that I think was a very crucial uh, point that of discussion. Uh, just very quickly, because we're almost out of time, Miss um, Mutavsiyev, do you have any questions for Mr. Tripathi? Uh, yeah, actually, yeah, I had. Quick question for him. Uh, so I said before, I think uh, that terrorist organizations and uh, criminal groups should, like, they should be tackled simultaneously. Uh, and I wanted to ask him, uh, uh, in your experience, I know you follow the, and you cover the trials. Uh, do you think this happened? It doesn't happen. I mean, the organized crime groups are almost seen as you know they're so deeply entrenched it's like you know the we all know the criminal element in our family who nobody likes and some something needs to be done about them but at the same time that guy gives some gets nice gifts for some people in the family and then you know the idea of dealing with that person always gets kicked into the future sometime till they go and do something completely psycho and mad right and then you say we can never how did we even allow this guy to come home now it does not uh and the reasons for that are many and they are complex. And I think a lot of it comes down to complicity and corruption, which is something that we don't want to look at because it is always much easier to have a very strong, muscular, uh, national narrative of external threats than to try and understand that the wicked problems, as they are called in criminology, exist within the system. And they are much, much harder to take care of, especially in the South Asian uh context uh but it has its uh consequences and uh, even though we have a short memory and we keep trying we keep like ignoring them uh it, i mean it, unless it's tackled it will still have that cycle uh, but i don't think there is uh much motivation because all in all it's also very convenient and very profitable for a lot of people involved thank you dr tripathi we're almost out of time um so i would just like to make one very quick observation if i may one of the formulas that proved to work in punjab in the 1980s and 1990s for the police was to fuse intelligence on three topics uh counter-terrorism counter-narcotics and counter-espionage Actually, the espionage angle is because Pakistan's ISI was involved in supporting the terrorism in Punjab, the narcotics element because of the logistics angle, and of course, counterterrorism is self-evident. Previously, they had treated these three subjects in silos, but when they brought everything together, they developed a very comprehensive assessment, which allowed them to then prioritize which areas they were going to strike in operationally. And that enhanced the capability of the Indian state by a significant factor. Whereas, as you said, you know, when you don't deal with your domestic issues, you can complain as much as you like about foreign elements. But, you know, first you need to get your own house in order. I would like to thank our distinguished panelists. This, for me, was an extremely interesting session. And I also know that you all took the time the time and trouble to get up early in the morning in Europe. So thank you all very much.